Right. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to uh, this evening um, on this debate, The Housing Crisis, Causes and Solutions. Um, my name is Simon Marshall. I am the Secretary of the London Branch of the SDP. Um, the aim of housing policy must be to ensure that decent, affordable housing is accept accessible to every citizen. No recent government has come close to achieving this. I'm therefore joined tonight uh, by, two, uh, by four excellent panelists to, to examine why this is so. Uh, they are, on my right, um, William Clouston, the leader of the SDP. Um, to my left, Liam Halligan, an economist and journalist and author of the book Home Truths. Um, to my right again, um, Charlotte Gill, a journalist who has commented widely on housing issues in London. And to my left, Kristin Nimitz, Head of Political Economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs. The format tonight is simple. Each panelist will present a five-minute summary of their view as to the causes and possible solutions to the current housing crisis. The panel will then debate the issues before we then open up to the audience for a Q&A. We ought to be finished by 8.30, but we shall see. Right, um, I shall start off by leading off with uh, Liam Halligan, who Thank you very much. <clears throat> it's nice to be here. Uh, I'm not a member of any political party, but um, when serious people ask me to show up to say what I think about serious issues, then I'm very happy to. So thank you to William and the SDP and to Steve, of course, for this invitation and for convening this meeting on what I think is possibly the most important question in British politics. We cannot become the party of nimbyism that would hugely damage our country and our electoral fortunes. So said Simon Clark last month, the very tall former housing secretary. He was pleading with fellow Tory backbenchers to support more house building, defying the not in my backyard campaigners who blocked new developments. Because back in December, of course, as you may remember, Rishi Sunak had bowed to pressure from those same backbenchers, dropping compulsory house building targets for local authorities. Keir Starmer responded, of course, by pledging a future Labour government would reinstate them. The Tories are killing the dream of home ownership, declared Starmer, jabbing his finger at the Prime Minister from the House of Commons dispatch box. Labour wants to concrete over the Greenbelt, Sunak replied. Now, it's amidst this cross-party constant mudslinging that the reality often fails to break through. And the reality is that the UK has a fundamental lack of homes to buy and rent. As I describe in my book, Home Truths, the UK's chronic housing shortage. That's why today's young adults, ladies and gentlemen, spend more on housing and are less likely to be owner occupiers than any generation since the 1930s. While 3.1 million UK homes were built during the 60s, that fell steadily over the following decades to just 1.5 million throughout the 2000s, then 1.1 million during the 10 years from 2010, lagging population growth. While France and Germany now have 580 and 520 dwellings per thousand inhabitants, the UK has little more than 400. That explains why UK house prices have surged more than 400% in real income adjusted terms since 1970 compared to just 180% in France and 40% in Germany. And that has stoked the UK's now chronic affordability crisis. 
No wonder owner-occupancy has plunged among 25 to 34-year-olds from 70% in the mid-90s to less than 40% now, with over half a generation denied the security of home ownership at this crucial family-forming, child-bearing age. The private rental sector has meanwhile doubled to 20% of households with rent soaring, again reflecting the serious lack of homes. Now, stubbornly high inflation, soaring guilt yields have pushed up mortgage rates over recent weeks, putting the brakes on years of rising house prices. But the average UK home still costs around eight to 10 times average annual income compared to a historic long-term average of four to five times. That's why so many UK households remain priced out of home ownership, facing the locked door of unaffordability. Open market rents, meanwhile, remain sky high in many places, and a dearth of social housing means, at the sharp end, millions more are living in often substandard, subsidised rentals, pushing the housing benefit bill well over £20 billion. That's more than the combined running costs of the Home Office, the Department of Justice and the Department of Transport combined, the state taxpayers financing the buy-to-let empires of open, unscrupulous social private sector landlords. Successive Conservative Prime Ministers have vowed to get Britain building. Millions of priced out young adults, after all, if they become owners, should be more likely to vote Tory in years to come. The expansion of social housing would also be electorally popular, not least in many of the red wall seats that the Tories won from Labour in 2019 and need to retain to stay in office. But, 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 from the Cameron era onwards, the Tories have failed to tackle the UK's housing shortfall, reverting to nimbiest type. Does Sunak understand that the sacred green belt, far from being concreted over, as the campaign for the protection of rural England constantly says, the acreage of the Greenbelt, ladies and gentlemen, and the numbers are in my book, has more than doubled in size over the last 40 years. The Greenbelt now covers a preposterous 13% of this country's landmass, while residential buildings, including gardens, account for under 2%. Much of the Greenbelt is anyway inaccessible to the public or ugly urban scrub of no aesthetic value, yet many wealthy homeowners not entirely irrationally, continue to wield holier-than-thou environmentalism to scupper local house building. We simply must build more homes so today's young adults have the chance to live in dignity and to raise families. Since 2013, of course, the Tories have relied on help to buy, lending around 25 billion quid of the government's money to a limited number of buyers to purchase new build homes. But that's just stoked demand in the face of inadequate supply, increasing prices even more for the vast majority who can't access the help to buy scheme. Help to buy has also helped entrench the UK's already dominant large developers, some of whom have used the scheme to channel captive home buyers into substandard new builds on disgracefully punitive leaseholds. What's needed instead is radical supply-side reform to make sure the planning permissions granted over recent years, a growing share of which haven't been built out, are converted into saleable homes. Large developers stand accused by ministers and many others of staging a deliberate go-slow, contrived scarcity, making higher profits by producing fewer homes on bigger margins to keep prices rising. Developers producing 
under 100 homes a year, now build barely a tenth of new homes, down from a third before the 2008 global financial crisis, which blew away so many of those small developers. We need to inject competition into this once vibrant house building sector, helping SMEs, the small and medium sized enterprises, who build quickly, immediately after receiving planning permission, because they need to, to aid their cash flow. That's why the Competition and Markets Authority, with a lot of persuasion from me, has launched the first official inquiry into UK house building since 2008. But the central nub of the argument in Home Truths is that when it comes to the UK's housing shortage, the real problem is our opaque, dysfunctional market for land. When residential permissions are granted, land values can rocket many hundredfold. With this vast planning uplift, going almost entirely to landowners, developers, and shadowy intermediate land agents. My book argues this uplift should be shared 50-50 with local authorities. That would dampen price speculation, resulting in cheaper land and in turn more affordable and better quality new homes. Such land value capture would also generate significant funds to build schools, hospitals, and other infrastructure as the homes are being built making new developments and even entire new towns more popular, countering NIMBY arguments and transforming the, lo the fraught local politics of planning. Using land value capture in the way I propose is an ambitious proposal. It requires buy-in from both Labour and the Tories to make it stick. A less contentious policy to boost land house building quickly would be to make better use of state-owned land, which amounts to some 6% of all freehold acreage across the country almost a million hectares, rising to 15% in some urban areas, including countless sites primed for development. I calculate that if the state released just 1 20th of its land for development, that would be enough at the UK average density of 45 homes per hectare for over 2 million new homes, far more if urban areas were used, where building densities are of course higher. Sales of government land could be restricted to small local builders, and include strict conditions relating to build-out pace and affordable and social housing provision. Presented in this way, what I've called the Great British Land Sell-Off would appeal to both the centre-right, it's about a smaller state and more privatisation, and the centre-left, because it would boost the supply of affordable and social housing relatively quickly. The UK's housing, chronic housing shortage, is a cross-party problem, ladies and gentlemen, decades in the making. Cross-party collaboration is needed to solve it. Thank you. Um, thank you, Liam. Um, I will turn now to uh, Charlotte uh, for next response. Um, hi, everyone. Delighted to be here tonight. Um, really nice to meet you all. And um, yes, yeah, so to introduce myself, it's lovely because two people have already said they follow me on Twitter, <laughs> which I always say I'm so sorry because I've made quite a lot on there. But, um, but yeah, so uh, to introduce myself, I'm a producer from GB News and I also write a lot about um, housing and, and sort of Twitter activism to sort of spread the message. I, you know, I like to think of myself as a sort of moan of arc. Of, uh, of housing. Um, yeah, so, uh, and I come at it from, uh, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by a panel of, of fantastic experts on housing. I guess I just come from a, from quite a selfish perspective and I, I'm certainly not, you know, I came from a, I don't want to make up that I'm the worst person affected in the world in housing. Like, you know, I'm, I've come from a comfortable background, but that is what worries me because people, 
that it's just there's just no meritocracy anymore. Housing is so bad. People that don't have a deposit, people that don't have help, I just think it's become near impossible. I know one person, and I'm 34, that's got on the housing ladder without help from their parents um, with a deposit, and I just find that really shocking. And there's so many profound effects. I mean, um, you know, it's like, where to start? Um, but obviously, I think one of the biggest, in the last few days, we've seen that pubs are going out of business and uh, more reason to have a wonderful pint tonight and, uh, you know, keep the drinks flowing. But, um, but part of that is because a lot of people I'm seeing with millennials, just anecdotally, they're not going out as much. You know, they're, they're not spending in the way that older generations would have when they were 34. Um, millennial, you know, younger. Um, I've seen a lot of people just go home and just, you know, have a quiet night in with the co-op bottle or whatever because it's just so much cheaper. Um, and then, you know, you're just seeing... There's a lot of stuff, like, under the surface that I think a lot of people don't see, it, whether it's mould, whether it's horrible housemates, whether, you know, just so, so much. But the, And the, then there's even stuff at the more trivial end. Um, you know, I often think about community. I mean, that's one of the saddest things about the housing crisis. You go to an area, you know, you start maybe making friends or, like, visiting places, going to the local gym... And then you have no choice about how long you're going to be there. You're just plucked out and then moved. And I think one of the big consequences of that we're seeing in terms of... We're seeing the birth rate go down in Britain anyway because of housing. Like, how is anyone going to afford it? Um, but then also, community is such an important part of having children. So many people... I recently did an article... Um, about women who are just not, like, they're not having children because of the housing crisis and economic factors. It's actually, it's easier to say you don't want children because you're a birth striker or the environment or something like that, or just say, like, oh, I don't like them. It's more fashionable to say that. <laughs> I actually love children. That sounded like I didn't. But, like, um, but, you know, it's more fashionable to say that than to say, you know, I'm a broody birther wannabe and, um, and this is really hard and... Uh, yeah, when I did my article, a lot of people actually wanted to be anonymous. You know, they were scared about their jobs and things like that. And they're not, they're, they're, some of them are married, you know, they're in really good jobs. And they are like looking like crazy about where to settle to be near to jobs, be on a train line. Um, they haven't got their family close, basically. So they don't want, they don't want the state to fund their childcare. You know, they're not like, where's my free money or like, you know, any of these stereotypes. They just, they're like, how are we going to do it? They just don't have the solutions because of the breakdown of community. Um, just, yeah, so many little things like that. Um, yeah, I think recently, I, I've been, so I've been doing other case studies, and recently one thing I found quite shocking is I did just an article about people moving home with their parents because of the housing crisis. And I think my generation are quite used to doing that as like a stopgap. Like I went home in lockdown, for instance, because it was just a lot of money wasted, you know, being a little flat, and then... You know, other people go back when they're saving for a housing deposit. And I was talking to the generation below me, sort of Gen Z, and a lot of them were like, we've literally never moved out, you know, and they're not, they're not lazy. They're not um, doing the wrong things. One of them was like an aircraft engineer. You know, he had a really good job. He'd done an apprenticeship. He had no student loan. And he was living in council housing and he was actually like supporting his mother as well. So sometimes people don't realize that, you know, the housing crisis is also affecting older generations and there's, there's becoming a sort of, you know, multifaceted element to it economically. Um, but yeah, my heart, like, 
it's just really sad because you know, back in the day, if you used to watch dating shows in the 90s, it was sort of like, oh, he lives with his mom and dad. He's a bit of a, a loser or whatever. But now it's like, everyone's doing it. You know, it's just so, it's just so normal. Um, yeah, in terms, of, in terms of the crises, I really don't come as like, I know there's so many people with excellent like technical knowledge tonight. Like I, I just think the way I, so I sort of just primarily just think of it, um, like the things I, I talk about are just, it's just supply and you know supply and demand broadly. It's just demand radically outweighing supply, especially in the southeast. There's a lot of people that sort of say when I've when I've like written this on Twitter, they're like, oh, it's inflation, it's all the money printing. But then like you go and you look on Zoopla at like the properties, and you can see like a thousand other people have looked at that page. Some people are standing in queues. My friend, she went to a house viewing and someone like cried and like begged and got on their knees or something like to get that flat. Like it literally was that crazy. Um, and I think, I think the shortfall is something like 4 million. I think that's the latest element. And the thing that I am fairly unfashionable in terms of like my generation on is I talk about immigration in relation to housing, legal migration specifically. You know, if, if net migration is so last year, like 600,000. This year, there were estimates for a million, like we don't know totally yet. Then uh, there's no, you know, there's no way, like the house building in, in like England and Wales was around 200,000. So we're just, you know, we've got so many people and coming and there's nothing wrong with that. If you're gonna build, it just doesn't match at all. It's like, you know, it's like having the, the bath tap filled up and just the wall and you just gotta turn it down a bit. So I would say you gotta turn it down. Um, other, other sort of uh, solutions I would talk about in like in the most superficial terms possible are just, um, I read a, a book called San Francisco by Michael Schellenberger, it's really interesting. It was, um, you know, he talked about similar problems, the nimbyism in the the United States. And and by the way, I don't actually think nimbyism is a very constructive term, but, um, but maybe we'll come back to that. Um, and he was talking about Basically, the paradox is there's too much democracy in the system. There's too many people, like there's too much localism and all these annoying words that conservatives now use, like, oh, local, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? They've just gone obsessed. And, um, and also it's weighted against, because if you're not in the community and you never have a stake in the community, it's just weighted against you. Like he's, he talks about the fact that you know, like 70% or something in the area he was talking about were like a, over a certain age demographic. So, generation rent are never gonna get that say in it um but yeah yeah i guess i just i just leave it there but there's yeah that's probably what i think about it next up christian yes thank you i'll just say a few words about how we got into this mess so on house building and house prices we've got good data going back about 170 years and what it shows is broadly that from the middle of the 19th century until the Second World War, so for a period of nearly a century, house building, house building rates were consistently higher than they are today. So the housing stock uh, during that period used to grow by about 2% every year. And the result of that was that for a century, housing affordability improved continuously. In the middle of the 19th century, the, uh, the average house price was about 12 times the average wage, meaning for most people it was obviously unaffordable. 
by the turn of the century, that ratio had dropped to eight. And by the end of the 1930s, uh, because the <coughs> 1930s were really the golden age, um, housing stock uh, increasing by 2.5% every year, uh, at the end of the 30s, that ratio of house prices to incomes had dropped to four. And that's the lowest it had ever been. So I'm not saying everything was fantastic in pre-war Britain. There were obviously issues with uh, Remain in Victorian slums and all that. don't want to romanticize that. But clearly, the country was traveling in the right direction. Things were improving. And every generation <coughs> could expect that their housing situation would be better than that of the previous generation. That was the situation up until then. The game changer was really the Town and Country Planning Act of 1947, which I'm sure we'll discuss later. Um, the, the change of that, uh, that changed the way the housing market operates, but it was not immediately obvious that it had done that, because there still was a housing boom of sorts in the 1950s and 60s. And that is why that was mostly council housing. That's why some proponents of council housing see that period, the 60s, the post-war decades, uh, as the golden age. But I don't agree with that, and for two reasons. Uh, firstly, that so-called post-war housing boom was a step down relative to the 1930s, and it should really have been a step up because of the of wartime destruction, uh, Luftwaffe bombings, and more simply, the pent-up demand of the war years. It should really have been an acceleration, not a step down. And secondly, perhaps more important, <coughs> that the house building rates of those, uh, of those uh, immediate post-war decades were also below the Western European average. So even that, even that alleged boom was already a period of relative decline. And by the 90s or so, Britain had actually fallen quite a bit behind the Western European average. And that just got worse and worse. So in every decade since the 60s, house building rates were lower than in the decade before. And the result of that is that now Britain has one of the most inadequate housing stocks in the developed world. If we wanted to match the, uh, the European average, so uh, per uh, housing units per 100,000 people, uh, we would have to build another three and a half million homes. And even then, we would not be good. We would just be about average. And for a while, that didn't seem to matter that much. So in the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, even 80s, you couldn't see that much in terms of housing affordability. <coughs> you had uh, house prices to incomes being in a corridor from four to six. So not brilliant, no longer improving as it was in, in the 30s, but not catastrophic yet. From the mid 90s onwards, it exploded. And uh, now we have the situation where the average house price is about nine times the average income. Uh, Liam. Uh, alluded to that. And that means this takes us back to where, uh, to the situation as it was in roughly 1880. So we have reversed, we have undone a century and a half of progress, basically. Now, why uh, did this happen? Well, it is, on the face of it, it's a fairly simple issue. I mean, housing is not a high-tech industry. Uh, piling bricks on top of other bricks, that's, that's something that people have been doing for hundreds of years. It's really not that complicated. Uh, what happened was that the, the Town and Country Planning Act that I mentioned was, uh, well, urban planning nerds sometimes talk about the distinction between a discretionary planning system and a rules-based planning system, which sounds uh, maybe annoyingly technical. It just means a discretionary planning system is uh, one in which every planning application is 
debated on its own terms, on a case-by-case -case basis, somebody applies, and then uh, you have some local decision-making mechanism uh, <laughs> to decide whether that should go through or not. Whereas, and that's the system here, whereas in a more rules-based system, you just have general rules about what can be built where, and if an application complies with those rules, uh, takes the right boxes, then it cannot be unreasonably refused. Now, at first sight, you might think, well, the first one, the discretionary one, sounds like a better idea, because surely that gives you extra flexibility. Uh, every planning application is a bit different from every other one. No two planning applications, no two housing development projects are exactly alike. That's true until uh, a system gets captured by NIMBY interests. And uh, I actually think NIMBY is a useful term. It is pejorative, yes, but it's meant to be pejorative, because the NIMBYs are the baddies. <laughs> and uh, no, th I think we should, what we actually need is um, a situation like uh, when Thatcher confronted the, uh, <coughs> the, the mining union, uh, she didn't say, oh, let's listen to their concerns or any of that nonsense. She said they are the enemy within. And that is the approach that we need uh, with regard to NIMBYs today. Thank you, Christian. Uh, last but by no means least, uh, William. Thank you. Well, and thanks very much for coming along. We, we actually love debate and, you know, if we disagree, that's fine. We might persuade you, but we're, we're up for the debate. Uh, I'm going to start with a, a quote. Uh, the solution to our problems are rejected, solutions to our problems are rejected not because they are difficult, but because they are simple. That's R.H. Tawney. Uh, I think he's right. I think the cause of the housing crisis is very simple indeed, which is the deliberate destruction of state sector capacity in house building uh, over many years. And more recently, that combined with our insatiable demand for mass immigration. And the solution is to cure or correct both. We're not here tonight to talk about immigration. We're going to talk about housing. So um, concentrating on housing, I'd make the basic point, uh, to back up what I'm saying, that post-war, roughly speaking, the private sector and the public sector shared the burden of building homes. You can argue about the aesthetic quality of the homes. and I, A lot of people say when I want to get the state back in the business, they say you'll be back with monstrosities and brutalism. I don't agree at all. It's a completely different question. But the point is that the burden was shared between the two sectors. And if there's one thing that I want you to, to leave with tonight is to think about the British housing sector. If it were a bird, what's happened is that one of its wings has been hacked off and we wonder why it won't fly or it can't fly. And I love table analogies on anything. And, and basically, post-war, until about 79, and there was a long dwindle, but until about 79, the, st the state provided half, roughly half, and the private sector provided half. And the fascinating thing is that the private sector has never, the, the completion rates are, have never really changed very much. I mean, in a bad year, it's 150, in a good year, it's 220, and it's always been like that. The last year that the state outbuilt the private sector on numbers was 1970. I think they built about 178,000, just tipping them. And then there's a gradual decline. And there's a horrifying statistic, actually. If you're on the left, and I, Wayne Dixon and I 
sees the Labour Party and leads about this quite often. Mrs Thatcher built more council houses every year than New Labour did in its entirety. Shocking, shameful, absolutely shameful. Anyway, if you leave with one thing tonight, um, it's that idea that you, you can't get a successful housing sector if you've, if you've dis deliberately destroyed uh, an entire part of it. So the question for us as a party is, how do we get the state back, if we believe this, how do we get the state back in the business of constructing houses at scale? And I asked the policy team, who are a lot cleverer than me, uh, to, 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 to analyze it properly, and what do you need? I said, we'll give you anything you need to get this done. And the three things that you need are, are basically entities to build the houses, and Liam and I have debated who builds the houses, but I think the state should. Um, entities to build the houses, the required powers to do that, and the resources to do that. So just going through it, each of them. Entities to, to build houses. I'm not, I'm not, I don't believe, I'm very statey, but I don't believe that mm. local authorities would be the best and most effective at doing this. So our solution is to go back to the Thatcher era, actually, and look at development corporations. Development corporations, go down to Docklands, whatever you think of Docklands, but they had a lot of power, CPO, there were the planning authorities, basically judge and jury. You know, they, they, they had the power to do it. What we want is housing development corporations with similar powers to that. So that's the entity that they would actually do it. Uh, they would acquire the land, uh, they would train people to build, train young people. To there are lots of problems socially in, this, in the city, a lot of youth uh, not doing the right thing. There should be no excuse for this. They should be trained and they should be doing plastering, chippy work, bricklaying and all the rest of it. Um, so those are the entities, housing corporations, it's a combination, typical STP, it's a combination of a sort of Thatcherite idea but it's very statey. Uh, on required powers, basically those those are baked in. So those housing development corporations would have CPO powers to acquire the land. And quite controversially, they would be the planning authority as well. So you're, you're, you're basically saying you have the power to build and grant yourself permission. You've got to have a call-in structure at national level to stop abuse, and it's got to be monitoring. But that's basically what the UDCs had. I would give it to housing corporations just for this sector. Resources. Um, We've basically, as you know, we spend, we spend 17, 18 billion on um, housing benefit a year. That's a flow. I would, I would clamp that down and divert some of that into, into house building. We spend about eight or nine billion on house building anyway via flows into the uh, registered social landlords. But the, we need to raise some money. We need to raise some tax for this. And the idea that we've taken, we took from Liam which is basically plan taxing planning gain by 50%. The state takes 50%. Planning gain is the uplift that is attributable to getting planning consent. So you have a greenfield site. This is, in our policy, it only applies to greenfields. Greenfield site out in Hertfordshire, house builder gets consent for it. Price values go from half a million to 20 million. The state takes half of that uplift. Uh, it would result in fewer yachts and fewer Lamborghinis, but it's a price we are prepared to pay. Um, so that's how you p help pay for it. I just want to end on, on, a, on, a, on a sort of plea, really. Um, we are governed by people who outsource and uh, 
deny responsibility in so many areas, and people are absolutely fed up with this. You speak to a modern politician of any hue, they will, oh, we're going to get them to do it, or them to do it. And it's exactly the same with this. The people that govern us are only really, recently, are only really interested in doing two things, taxing us or regulating us. And that tax and regulation is their solution to everything. What I'm asking for them to do is to actually do something, to actually do something. And I think if you offer that to the public, say we're going to do it, and it will work, I think you'll get a lot of votes. So we, we are a party of wanting the government to actually take action, not regulate. The, the final thing, point I'd make is that um, you've got to elect people that want to do this. You, you know, a lot of our problems are caused by electing people that don't really want to do it, whether it's migration or industrial policy or whatever. They don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. I chair a small community council in Northumberland. Uh, I've been chairman for four years. It's taken four years to do. We've just had four council houses built. This is a small community council. I think there's only one other community council in the country that's done it. Uh, we did it because we wanted to do it. We, and there are 13,000 community councils. And everything, if every council did what we'd done, there'd be several thousand houses. You've got to want to do it. If you want to do it, you can do it. Uh, so that's my message. Do it. Thank you. Great. Well, I, I suppose it falls on me to uh, kick off the uh, debate aspect of it. So I could think of no final way of doing that in... Uh, starting off in defense of NIMBYism, because <laughs> I gather pretty much everybody is a NIMBY at heart, and that they probably are is also, I guess, what is it? I've got down Sebi's at heart, uh, somebody else's backyard. So I can't imagine anybody um, likes the prospect of having um, any kind of construction, whether it be out in the countryside or whether it be in central London, um, on their doorstep, because their first question is, well, all these people that are going to, be, going to be coming and living in that, um, that housing estate or that apartment complex, where are they going to go to school? Where are they going to uh, go to hospital? So I will turn immediately to both uh, Liam and um, Christian and say, what is the argument? If you're just starting off with house building on its own without concentrating on the infrastructure to go with it, which people's, well, that will be people's natural question. Where is the infrastructure to go with the house building? Okay. Um, I mean, yes, obviously, uh, you can't just put some houses somewhere into no man's land and no supporting infrastructure around it. But I also don't think that's what anyone is seriously proposing. Uh, my impression is most of the time when somebody says, uh, when, when anti-development campaigners say, oh, we're concerned about the infrastructure or whatever, uh, in nine out of ten cases, that's just an excuse because the very same people, if you propose to build a road somewhere, they would also be up in arms about that. And uh, so NIMBYism isn't just an anti-housing sentiment, it's anti-infrastructure, anti-energy generation. There is even uh, a NIMBYism against uh, water reservoirs and um, then people wonder why we have the problems that we have in, with the water supply. So uh, most of the time I wouldn't take those objections at face value. Um, and also there is the idea that uh, just because you build houses somewhere, uh, you increase demand for, for, uh, for doctors or, or schools. That isn't true. The people are already there. The question is just, should we squeeze them into studio flats um, or should we give them spacious, high quality places to live? But whichever it is, they're going to need a GP at some point. Uh, if they have children, they're going to need 
school places and so forth. So that demand isn't new. Uh, it just gets shifted around a bit. I'd say we would generally be better off with a more decentralized tax system. If, um, if more of the tax that you pay uh, stays in the local area so that they can then use it to provide that infrastructure, um, education, whatever it is that uh, may be lacking locally. And that is also one of the problems that uh, here about 95% of the tax revenue goes uh, straight to the treasury, meaning the national level. Whereas um, in many other countries, uh, Canada, Switzerland, there's a much bigger share for uh, firstly the regional level and uh, then the, the uh, municipality, the local level. That would be a more sensible way uh, of doing it. Or even the, uh, the planning uplift that, that um, both Liam and William were talking about. Why not? Wherever, uh, where exactly it comes from is secondary. It should remain in the area and you should give uh, the local area, the possibility to provide the supporting infrastructure? Um, the first thing I'd say is that um, nimbyism is rational. Uh, we need to recognize that. So we need to shift the incentives in order that it's not only the nimbies that have a reason to speak up in these local planning disputes. Um, nimbyism, nimbyism is rational because for a lot of people, the construction is messy and noisy. It ruins their view. In their view, it lowers the price of their house, which is almost always their principal asset. And it does mean outside of urban areas where a lot of these disputes happen, um, that there are fewer school places, doctor, dental, hospital places to go round. So that's why people are nimbyist. It's kind of annoying that they dress it up in virtue signaling environmentalism. Um, but what they are saying is, is rational. So you have to shift the incentives and you shift the incentives by sharing the planning gain as I've spoken about. So money is immediately available simultaneously. So new infrastructure is built as the houses mm. are being built. And then you wouldn't only have the nimbyists in a local community being activist and rallying and getting organized you'd have younger people who want a new school, who want yeah. a new hospital. You'd get people thinking, oh, we live in the middle of nowhere. If this development happens and with it comes new infrastructure, suddenly my house is worth more. Mm. Suddenly it's worth enduring the upheaval and the mess for a year or two, because suddenly I live somewhere that counts. You know, the kind of planning uplift sharing that I've been advocating uh, and it's interesting that in the foreword to my book, um, Sajid Javid, no less, backed it 100%. Michael Gove has privately backed it. It's sort of a cross-party idea, but it's been used around the world. Australia, Germany, South Korea, the Netherlands, quite a lot of the states of America. We are a complete outlier in the UK that all the planning uplift goes to the landowner or to shadowy land agents or to developers who have optioned the land. I mean, that's another whole debate, the way developers option land from, from farmers. It's no central register of that. It's completely outrageous in, in my view that the state doesn't even know who controls land. That's mm. crazy. Mm. So it's a completely feudal system. So we are an outlier. Our, our, the system is unusually feudal and Christian rightly um, talked about the Town and Country Planning Act, the importance of that. But I think the real 
driver of our current situation was something that's much less known, which I write about extensively, which is the 1961 Land Compensation Act. And the 1961 Land Compensation Act, I could talk for hours about where that came from and why it came about. Uh, it's worth saying, uh, though, that it was the last kind of gasp of feudal landowning Britain to control the population. And what the 1961 Land Compensation Act, and it's almost unique in the world, it gives the whole of the uplift to the landowner. Not only the uplift at the time of sale, but future hope value of what the land might be worth in the future. It's completely insane. And because of this 1961 Land Compensation Act, you have many, many millions of young families working themselves to the bone, doing massive commutes, not seeing their kids, families breaking up. Both, couple, both members of a couple having to work full-time the whole time, even though, dare they admit it, they don't want their lives to be like that. When you are, as Christian brilliantly pointed out, if I may say so, when you are at nine, ten times average earnings for the average home, let alone in London and the South East, for the average home, then if you can get three times your mortgage, if there are two people earning full-time, even before you got childcare, that's five or six times earnings, right? So where does the rest come from? And we're talking about averages here. And that goes back directly to the absolutely egregious 1961 Land Compensation Act. And if you did a poll of members of the House of Commons, I guarantee you less than 10 would even have heard of that act, let alone understand its ghastly implications. Well done. Yeah. Um, actually, from a technical point of view, uh, NIMBYism uh, is, is of no concern to our policy because um, the housing corporations could grant themselves consent. So it's quite brutal. I admit it's quite brutal. Um, uh, it's a little bit of a flippant comment because it's everywhere. But you know, it, 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 it isn't really a problem to our policy. It wouldn't stop our proposal working because it wouldn't apply. It just wouldn't apply. Um, I think we are in an emergency and I think we need to build some houses and I, I as I say the policy team gave us everything that we needed. Um, on, I just want to f agree with Liam from a, from a practical point of view. We, we, we had a, no it's, it's about what the full package is right so we again to going back to where I live in Northumberland like a lot of small uh, villages you know 4,000 people we've had our fair share of new schemes the most recent new scheme is 180 houses because I used to work as a developer and town planner. I worked out the gross development value. I, I, I pretty much have a good idea of what the land value jump was. Uh, and we got very, very little. We, 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 it was a little bit of 106 money and, and some affordable housing, but that is just literally peanuts compared to... Now, if you, there was a lot of objection to that scheme, but as Liam says, if you said, what is the scheme? Well, the scheme is revamping the marketplace, Southside car park, three, you know, 4G pitch for the kids, the full package, that's a completely different thing to just 180 new houses. So nimbyism becomes yimbyism and, and you get the full package. It is, it, it lives quite right, I think that's why we've nicked the policy. I mean, that, that, it's a very technical thing and most even explaining it to people, what planning gain is, uh, how it works, can be a bit of a struggle, but it's the root problem. And no, no serious society does this. We, we do it and it's brutal and as I say we, we the, the, the price we pay is huge.
Scarlett? Um, yeah, on, on nimbyism, um, I agree with Liam in that it is rational. We all have a nimby inside us, you know. I, I certainly did, the other night, one of my neighbours, I was telling William and um, like earlier that one of my neighbours was very noisy and my inner nimby came out and sort of told them off. Um, I know it's not exactly the same thing, but you get what I'm saying, it's a sort of inner terrier quality. Um, one thing I've always found kind of interesting is that, because I actually grew up like around this area in Islington, um, so I knew this area really well, and then when I was 13, my parents, we all moved to the Sticks, uh, Maidstone in Kent, so we were living quite rural, and I find that it's like the more space people have, the more nimby they get. There's a really weird, whereas like Londoners and people living in town are a bit more chilled about it because they're just, I guess it makes sense, they're used to it, but it's like, it's almost like your space will never be satiated the more space you have and you just get really precious about like an extension and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, with nimbyism, I do, I do get it to an extent. And I also think you, some people might think, well, I moved to the sticks for a reason. I don't want to be surrounded by lots of people. Um, but I also think what Liam's saying about how the you know prices would go up with infrastructure and things like that as well. And I think what also what you're seeing in London is that um, we've there are schools that now just don't have any children to go to. So then the infrastructure is closing in a sort of paradoxical, strange way. Um, because young people, you know, the people that are looking for houses breathe life into areas. You can look at it one way, like, oh, we're going to have to spend more on a GP and, and like, infrastructure, basically. But also, who's going to look after the ageing population, that sort of thing. Like, so breathing new life into things works that way. The reason I don't think NIMBY is a very good term, mm. though, I know it, is, it makes sense. I just see a lot of people say, yeah, pejoratively, and I just think... One, it's a bit technical. I think the sort of I'm a yimby, nimby, like it doesn't really, I don't think it really stings to the nation in a way needed to like get everyone involved in the housing debate. And then the other reason I think is that rather like sometimes gender critical feminists now get called TERFs and part of them are just like, yeah, I am a TERF. You know, they just don't, they actually quite like it, you mm, know. Of course. And I think, I mean, there was an article in the Times where, where this woman was like, I'm the biggest NIMBY in the UK. And she was sort of standing there, like, really proud. And I just thought, you're actually going to get people like that that are just like, yeah, I'm going to own it. Um, well, then they would at least be honest about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but I just, the, yeah, I just don't, I just see a lot of people saying, like, you're a NIMBY. And I just think, well, they don't, they don't give a... One thing, one thing I did call people, which I mean I thought was quite effective, but um, it, I called people nimbocrits because I found that a lot of a lot of the nimbies were like very liberal on immigration, and they'd be like, "Oh, this far right, these far right Tories closing the borders, and like we need to take all the refugees in, and like things like that." And then you would go on their Twitter profile, and they'd be like, "I'm very proud. I've blocked a slide being." built or like you know and i just thought you are so contradictory and you're and you're i actually think they're the most disgraceful people out of all politicians because they they tell the tories and, and anyone that's like concerned about the level that they're like closing the door and they're evil but what's the difference if you close the door in your own community and you don't build any infra mm. infrastructure it's cruel mm. Mm. it's wrong and and their whole moral high ground take as well makes them contemptible so i'm happy to call them nimbocrats. But that's as far as I'll go. 
Um, thank you, Sean. I'm going to slightly uh, stick you on to this and turn directly to, to William. I think a lot of people's um, perception, particularly those people that live in the inner cities, um, will see a tremendous amount of, um, I'm not going to call it house building, I'm going to call it um, a complex building. And the one which I pass every day pretty much is the huge, um, again, complex um, next to Westfield in West London, where there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flats going up. And I believe the starting price is somewhere in the region of 650,000. That's what somebody, mm. somebody told <coughs> me. And so turning to William, uh, people will ask the question, it's like, well, how are these clearly flats are being built, how is it that they become so unaffordable to the, the general public? I, th I think some of that, I think some of that development in Manchester and London and other big cities has actually got virtually nothing to do with this place really. It's um, a lot of its capital from other places, East Asia, and uh, finds its way here. And it's a form of speculation. And, and I think the um, it's a crying shame for people to be walking past large schemes of that kind and see no lights on. This has been going on a long time. Uh, cities around the world have, have tried to tackle it. Uh, you know, Vancouver has quite a muscular approach to it and things. I, as I say, it's yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 Vancouver. Yeah, they'll they'll they'll, they'll a lot of capital will pile in. And then they'll try and do something, something for uh, the locals by banning uh, investment of certain times. And that's the problem. In, in, this, in this city, you'll, you will have this. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think we probably need to look at it and regulate it. You know, but it's not helpful. It's almost got nothing to do with what's going on here. Uh, personally, I think a lot of people that have invested in these units are probably going to get, if they get the timing wrong, they'll get badly burnt. It's just a form of speculation. And Liam could probably advise us on it. but. Maybe, maybe house prices are, are going to fall. I, I want house prices to fall in this country. I don't think high house prices or high rents are socially useful. I don't want that. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's certainly a live issue. I mean, I, I, in Manchester, if you look at the, the flats that are being built there, one of my sons lives there. And I said, well, just wait, wait. Because there is the pig cycle, you know, which is the, by the time they get the floor space to market. Basically, if there are a lot of cranes, and there's a lot of construction, it's probably already too, too late for them. When all that floor space comes to market, um, maybe it won't be worth what they thought it was. So, so I think it is disconnected. Sort of development I want is, is development that's related to what people want here, that serves the public here. Mm. That, that's got nothing to do with it. Um, I'll turn to, to Christian um, on this and just sort of float the thing. Because obviously, um, allied to um, those, um, the people who are purchasing those, uh, those apartments, um, there is clearly a huge amount of uh, university accommodation being constructed. And then I might suggest that surely that's just the free market in action, isn't it? As in, flats are being constructed and the free market demands effectively that actually those, the economy to work. Um, are being used by, by students because that gives employment to the wider economy. 
Well, okay, yeah, but why not? I mean, if you if you have student demand and you don't build for them, then you're forcing the students to compete with the resident population that's already there for the existing housing stock. And that's also true when you have, say, a gentrifying area, you have uh, richer people moving in, and yeah, okay, uh, a lot of the new housing development will maybe be there for them then. Uh, but then if you didn't build that new housing, then those newcomers would have to compete with the resident population that's already there for the existing housing stock. So it still means you're taking off the pressure there. And more generally, um, if a lot of new development is very expensive, well, that would just be because, say, if you had a cap on how much beer can be brewed, say only one hectolitre per year, then of course you would turn beer into a luxury good and most beer drinkers would be millionaires. Uh, and if you then said, we will very slightly relax that, uh, we'll give you permission to brew another 100 pints um, per year, then the people buying those 100 pints would of course still be very rich. Uh, but that would not be a reason for not granting that permission, for not having even a slight liberalization. And it would still be true, even if even if all new housing were just luxury housing, only affordable to millionaires, it would still mean the millionaire moves out of something and vacates some housing space somewhere else. And there is still, um, I don't want to call it trickle-down economics, but there, is still, there would still be a ripple effect and um, it would still benefit other people as well. Liam? Um, I wanted to come back on something that William said about council housing, just in case I don't get another chance. Um, um, so I wrote Home Truths, it was meant to be a love letter to home ownership because I grew up in a first generation home ownership household. My mum grew up in a council house with 10 kids and my dad grew up in a stone hut in the west of Ireland. So the fact that two working class people were able to buy their own home absolutely revolutionised their view of themselves. In my father's case it de-radicalised a, a firebrand Irish Catholic at a time when uh, of huge animosity between Britain and Ireland, somebody had grown up in wartime, um, uh, blockaded Ireland. Um, it, it made him feel, as I think it would make a lot of immigrants feel, that Britain cared, Britain had given him a chance, he had a stake in society, he wanted peace, he wanted order. Um, he'd worked hard and was rewarded. So that's why I wrote the book. But I ended up writing a lot more about social housing than I thought I would. And the reason I did is because when I thought about my childhood in a sort of crappy, unfashionable northwest London suburb, at least half my friends, thinking back, lived in council houses and they were low rise, they were low density, uh, good quality council housing. And they were and their parents were postmen and dinner ladies and firemen. Maybe they were taxi drivers. They were doing really important jobs that made the economy and society go round. And they were able to live in London because of that council housing. So I actually think council housing is really, really important. Um, and a lot of people would assume that I don't think that, but I absolutely do think that. At the height of council housing in Britain in 79, a third of UK households were in state-owned accommodation. It's now about 13%. I think the optimum is somewhere in between, somewhere like 20% or something like that. Um, but we're not building many council houses because, of course, 
local authorities, after a certain number of years, they have to give tenants the option to buy, and then the treasury, the treasury disgracefully, then takes four fifths of the proceeds of any sale. Mm. Uh, okay, it, it, we've, we've been working on it, but we 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 are you know it's been the case for for, for many many years. So there are many reasons that council houses aren't being um, uh, built. But what I'd say to William is, is this, I, I'm completely with you that you want, you and I want to shift the government's housing subsidy from benefits away to bricks. Yeah. If you put those council houses on the national balance sheet and use some resource accounting, you can actually respectably flatter the national accounts by building council houses, not least because you take away the, the ongoing bleeding flow of funds into housing benefit which I say is now a massive amount of money. And on the contrary, on the other side of the balance sheet, you have an asset that the state owns and then only has to maintain. So that's really, really important. But I wouldn't do the really heavy handed, with huge respect, state driven CPO development authority thing. Why wouldn't I? I wouldn't do it because it wouldn't hold the road politically. It might work for one parliament, maybe two, but politicians on the other side would come along and reverse it and we'd go back to the status quo ante. What you should be doing, as I outlined, is using the state's own land, right? The state owns 6.5% of all freehold. The state should be using that to build council houses. Why isn't that happening? It's not happening because the treasury hates house building. Why? Because there's a view in the, tre in the Treasury that I know very, very well that if we build lots of homes and house prices fall, there'll be a banking collapse. Why did the Treasury think that? One reason they think it is because all their big decision makers have got nice houses in Surrey yeah. and this policy appeals to their inner NIMBY. The other reason they think that is that 70% of all loans in this country are linked to residential property, right? Mm. I'm, nothing I'm saying, nothing I've been advocating for many years wants to bring about some massive house price fall. It's about a gradual yeah. correction, right? As we grapple with the issues of growing population, as Charlotte has, has pointed out many, many times, as our demography shifts, it's about a gradual correction. So what I would, I, I think William, if you if if you if 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 you allied the need for more council housing with CPOs, heavy-handed CPOs, that the Tory party and some others will be able to portray fairly or unfairly as unjust, Stalinist or whatever, then you risk undermining the whole idea, which I completely agree with you about, that we need more council housing. In the first instance, let's make council housing something that appeals to the left and the right. I spent a lot of the last year trying to convince the Conservative Party that they need to bring about more council houses if they want to win the Red Wall. Because what do people in the Red Wall want? They want to make sure their kids got somewhere to live. Because they're on, a lot of people are on the breadline. Council housing helps that. So let the state use its land. Tell the Treasury to get stuffed. The Treasury will always say, oh, you can't use this land because we could get more for it if we sell it to the private sector. Mm. But the Treasury, as so often, they fail to look beyond the, 
the next quarter, understanding that if the state used its own land, you could wean us off this absurd policy where we're spending 20, 25 billion quid a year forever on housing benefit rather than actually building <coughs> homes that the state owned. Of course, the state doesn't have to build them. You can contract them out. I don't want massive local authority public works departments. That's mad. You know, use state house building to kickstart private sector house building to get those apprenticeships going. As you rightly say, I'm, I'm almost in, in entire agreement with you on this, William, mm. but with that important proviso. Can I come up? Yeah, so the curious thing about council housing is that, firstly, on, on the things like, you know, do you have the right to buy? I, I'm in favour of that. I'm in favour of that on a one for one. One in, one yeah, out. Yeah, but and, the pro and it's just yeah. a ratio. It just never happened, did it? It never happened, and it, the ratio was seven to one against. So you're destroying, deliberately destroying the, sec the sector, uh, and, and to be honest, it was bribery. Some of the prices that even though even though the one to one, it's on the face of the bill that Peter yes. Walker and Heseltine put through Parliament. It's on the face of the bill, exactly. And then but it it's just happen. never imposed. And then it happened. Sorry. And then the, the other tragedy is that recently we've been governed by people who, who, even when an opportunity arises, couldn't see it when it was staring them in the face. I'm talking, of course, about the post uh, financial crash. The ability to to, to borrow money, at literally one percent. The yield on council house built stuff is, is, is three and a half percent. You've got the asset on the balance sheet and you've got a yield that is higher than your cost to build them. It's utter insanity uh, in how we were governed that first Tory uh, administration uh, with the Liberals. Dreadful, dreadful mistake. And I'm sure privately they probably admit it. Uh, it even the word council housing has a sort of political connotation. It's slightly loaded. Uh, but my broader point is this, is, is that you go back to SW1 and you read the stuff, that, and there's some very good stuff, you know, uh, you know, PX and, and uh, Civitas and uh, Centre for Cities producing good quality analysis on housing very, very often. But the thing they won't see, and I'm crying out for them to see, is that the state has a role. You know, you might argue, Liam, that my, my version of it is a little bit clunky. Aris Rusinos, uh, an unheard joke, that had the country elected a wizened old communist in, in 2019, at least we'd have got a housing program out of it. <laughs> the point, and it's the point, no, but the point is, that, and I'm asking people to just think, I mean, I would ask any, any one on the right at all, do you think the state should have any role in housing? What are you arguing for? No sensible society I, that I can see does that. You know, go to South Korea, go to Singapore, go go to a well-organised country, and they'll they'll know what they're doing. And usually, the state is involved. And I, I don't think I'm asking for very much. Um, thank you, William. I'm going to take a, a, a slight uh, left turn before um, then we quickly move on to the the Q and A. Um, so I'm going to draw back to um, something uh, which Charlotte said in her uh, speech about. Um, where people are, are living and, and families living together. And I'm sort of posing the question whether we haven't become too obsessed with home ownership as a country and referring all the way back to Michael Young's book, um, 1950s of um, Family and Kinship in the East End, where he sort of highlights the, the breakup of the three generation family to become a two generation family. And obviously that adds um, extra stresses on the um, the housing stock. 
is it, and I speak of one who, uh, who knows intimate in a moment, because uh, we moved myself and uh, my wife and my, my four-month-old, uh, have moved in, uh, back in with my mother in London, because we can't afford the rent at the moment. Um, is it a bad thing that generations are living together or should be brought back together? Surely that is uh, the, the social, and obviously it connects into the, uh, the social care thing, that, um, that those generations start to look after the elderly as they ought to and they ha as they have done throughout the history of society. Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. It sounds very nice, that's not set up in. I'm not going to say it's <laughs> pleasurable, but... Um, yeah, um, I mean, the yeah, the people I spoke to weren't very happy. There were people, like, living on a camp bed in their living room, and there weren't enough bedrooms for everyone in the house, and I used, like, to give an example, they weren't living with their family, but I knew someone in London that lived with 20 people and shared a bed in a room. There were two beds. It was a lot of people, like, on student visas or like coming over just for a nice year and keep the rent low they're all like you know it's like George's marvelous me medicine you know with the granny and grandpa's all in bed together um yeah I don't know I just think the whole what's happening at the moment is just really infantilizing for a lot of young people they just never get to adult you know I call them the Peter Pan generation mm -hmm. the fact that you are just it does something psychologically everyone wants to be self-sufficient and just constantly being pulled you know like you're on like a set of strings i don't know like a jack-in-the-box or something you know back to your your parents all the time it's just not very empowering and maybe you know if you if you're going to speculate about the snowflake generation or the sort of the rise of uh people needing trigger warnings and things like that you might think well maybe that had bears some sort of relation to that because people aren't growing up and they're not taking responsibility for big things so it's feeding into other areas of life um i think it's not it's nice as it, it's nice when families can take care of each other i certainly think it's nice you know like with older frail relatives when they can move in or be close eventually when they need support um yeah i do i think it's quite difficult as like a sort of tangential but relevant argument i would say that sometimes that does fall worse on women because they end up being sandwich carers so a lot of times people romanticize the idea of looking after family and we shouldn't be hiring support to do it but it still can be quite unequal um i actually just read a book like hags by victoria smith and she touched a bit a bit upon this i don't want to misquote her but it kind of made me think like you know there is an inequality to the idea of sand sandwich caring um i mean ultimately I think no <laughs> like I, yeah i guess what i'm trying to say is just like yeah i I've, I've known people who've done it i've done it everyone loves their parents you know most people love their parents everyone loves their family but you do, you're never flying the nest it's like when when's it gonna happen i mean it's just Cecil Day -Lewis is in the letting go sometimes yeah can i just add something yeah, to that so yeah. even if we had a 1930s style building boom uh you would still be allowed to live in multi-generation households if that is what yeah. you choose yeah, to do exactly. yeah, no, no, nobody <laughs> wants to ban that it's just that the fact that the average age uh, at which people move out i can't remember what the exact figure is but <coughs> I, I do remember that it was falling in the 80s 90s until the early 2000s and then it suddenly shot back up again mm. and that suggests to me that this is not a sudden cultural preference it's no. not that people are making that choice it would be if you have say a society that is more traditional say southern italy where 
that is just what people choose to do, then fair enough. But uh, if you have, if the tendency for several decades is that the average age at which people move out uh, falls and falls, and then suddenly it shoots back up again, that suggests that uh, this isn't a voluntary thing. This isn't Blocking. something people choose to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure, I, I can't remember, I'm fairly sure that the, the average size of uh, the, the apartment is uh, decreasing and decreasing and increasing, which makes it, uh, even if you're talking about a two-generation family living together, uh, as soon as someone hits the age of 18, if you're, if you're literally in a shoebox room, Yes, clearly you'll want to get out as soon as possible. Um, but if the, the size of uh, flats was larger, mm. um, would it certainly encourage a little bit more longevity? The houses we're building now, because there's so little a actual competition in the housing market, because the housing industry is lots of local oligopolies or probably even cartels, mm. the houses that we're building at the moment, lots of them are substandard. Um, lots of them won't even get through building regs uh, but they've got the smallest living rooms and bedrooms of any decade since the 1920s and they and they put miniature furniture yeah. in yeah to the showroom you know show house and it's it's a con yeah. if it's a Peter Pan generation yeah let's open it up yeah Hello. Okay. Um, on the social housing point, um, what does the panel think about making sure that British people get prioritised with social housing? Because when I in interact with people on Twitter, especially on the right, they say, I want to um, empathize, uh, sympathise with um, YIMBYs, but I know at the end of the day that the new social housing is going to go to some immigrant that's been here for like five or ten years. It's not going to go to the British people have lived here all their lives. So does the panel not think that there needs to be some sort of priority given to people that have lived here all their lives or their um, parents and grandparents who lived in the area uh, for um, multiple years? Uh, William, I'll... We, well, we actually, in, in, in relation to our council houses in uh, Corbridge, we actually did that. So we, we actually got a policy through that was a local uh, connections policy uh, and we had to get, we went through Home Finder like any normal situation, and uh, we got it through. And you, you know, it was tough though. The main problem was that we had four houses, we had 280 applicants, and I wish I had two, I wish I had 280 houses. That was the that, you go through this process, the hard process. I, I, I'll, I think we could certainly look at it in pockets, certainly look at it in geographically. They do it in the southwest as well. They prioritise local people, um, but the. The cause of the division on this mm. issue is the bloody lack of housing. That's the cause of it. And it, it, it sets people against each other. And I want a situation where you build so much, all sections of society get access to it, and there isn't this awful uh, you know, antagonism. It's not very expensive to build social housing, particularly if the land's free particularly if you already own the land. It, it really isn't that expensive. It isn't. Especially no. when you offset it against the massive housing benefit bill that you're helping yeah. to reduce. And you're right, that is a perception, and it's a perception that is extremely incendiary in many neighbourhoods. But the, the, we don't actually have to grapple with the ghastliness of, of what you're rightly putting forward if we just build more houses. Then there's enough houses. 
exactly. Yeah. Right? yeah, I mean, this comes up every now and then, this proposal, um, not necessarily with regard to where somebody was born, but I've seen proposals for, should we reserve a share for social housing for key workers, uh, NHS, maybe teachers? But once you get into this kind of micromanagement, mm -hmm. you're just talking about how to uh, redistribute the measly rations. The focus should really be on overall mm. supply. Mm. Yes, it should. And the, and, the, and, the, and the rationing is caused by the problem. I it kind of rem it reminds me in a really weird way, actually, of the 90s. And I feel like all the... Um, when, when a lot of women were having babies and they, they were sort of like talk, like, you'll get into council housing. And now it's, it's crazy because you know, remember the teenage birth rate was such a massive problem that everyone was talking about. And, that, and it literally has just like, now we've got completely the opposite problem. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like I see immigration, like it's sort of, uh, with the council housing, it's almost just usurped what I saw, what people saw with the teenage pregnancy in council housing in the 90s, with just people feeding like, hang on, I've worked hard, like what about me? And, you know, I'm really struggling as well. And like, you know, we're, we come first basically i think yeah it's a really de delicate issue but i do it is sad like like everyone says the, yeah the problem is housing because it is people scrapping for bits essentially um and i do think the debate i mean it's, it's sad that it's all the compact like people don't have any well a lot of people don't have compassion because the situation's just got so bad that it's become quite a dehumanizing debate like recently i hope to query by this to say this sensitively but i was reading Daniel Finkelstein, he's written this incredible book about his family and the Holocaust. I really recommend it. It's just so touching. And there's, there's sections about people being blocked, you know, refugees and like Jew, Jewish people being blocked from arriving. And it just really kind of like made me, th you know, really think like, wow, like at the moment, it, it has become very dehumanizing the way that we're talking, the whole, the way the debate is framed. And there's like no sort of nuances either just very like black or white and just I don't know it just really made me think and I, I think that's one of the saddest things about the housing crisis that um that people don't they don't have enough reserves of of like emotional capacity to empathize so it's a bit rambling but I think yeah can I just have one tiny point on on immigration and housing because um if you look at my family's history you know we're paddies from way back and we built a fucking lot of houses, right? Yeah, yeah. My, my, my people built the underground. We built a lot of this country. Um, and it's a real shame that the lack of housing is making the debate about immigration so much more emotionally charged than it necessarily needs to be. As I said, 2% of this country's landmass has residential property on it, right? 8% of this country's landmass is actually developed. There is tons of space, right? Tons of space. I'm going to go back home to Saffron Walden tonight and I will go through endless green fields that are a short change journey from London and they're not being used. So we're in a situation where <coughs> compare us with France. France has actually had a lot more immigration than us over the last 30 years. And yet they've built a lot more houses. And that's why the number of houses per thousand, as I said, is 520 rather than less than 400 in this country. Immigration is a complex issue. Take it from me. I really understand. I really understand my, you know, the discrimination that we suffered, even in my life in the 70s and 80s. 
proper racism. So I understand all about how the immigration debate really gets people's backs up, but it doesn't need to be as emotionally charged as it is. Sort out the planning system. Let the immigrants build the houses. Then they'll be accepted. Take it from Irishmen. I, I think, oh sorry, I think one, one way that the Tories can, like, or the government can detoxify the debate is because, because there are the people that are like, we either build loads more, like, it's sort of framed like, we either build loads more or we cap immigration. But one, one thing they could do is rather like, you know, with net zero, how they have legally binding targets. I always think setting a ratio, something like, you know, like you know how empty homes in a country can be a measure of how good its housing system is, and when there's a certain percentage, it sort of signifies that everything's okay when it starts going under that. But just setting a ratio of housing to population, the population can never grow a certain amount more than this amount of housing. It's legally binding. They have something like, like we have the climate change committee. At, an independent panel that has to decide how we get there. So it sort of detoxifies the debate for everyone wanting more housing, wanting a more proportionate approach and, and helps like build parties' consensus. But it's up to the government how they reach that target. I just said there's obviously a lot of questions, so we'll try and wrap <coughs> through yeah, them. Hi. Um, very interesting to hear the uh, words you have to say about the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act, that 61 Land Compensation Act. More recently, a little bit more recently, uh, there was a massive overhaul in housing law in, in 1988. You had the Housing Act, which brought in a lot of landlord-friendly legislation, one of the big provisions being um, no-fault evictions. And that seems to have, combined with mortgage deregulation, encouraged an awful lot of people to buy houses as investments. Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of talk I hear about decommodifying housing and how that might help. Um, with, because the incentive is to invest all our money into housing rather than in other areas. Um, starving business capital. Any, any thoughts on this? Yeah, first of all, um, the, the deregulation of the rental market was necessary and that was a good thing. The private rental sector was tiny up until that point. It was uh, destroyed by rent controls in, in the post-war uh, years. And, and even if you have um, plentiful house building, there will always be, not everyone wants to buy a home uh, for whatever reason. Uh, people don't know how long they're going to live in a particular area or some people just don't want to take the risk of being homeowners, there can be all sorts of legitimate reasons. There's nothing wrong with uh, the existence of a large uh, private rental sector. Uh, so that's why sometimes I, I don't share the, uh, the conservative concern with home ownership. The reason why they think about it is, of course, they think as soon as somebody owns a home, they will become more likely to uh, vote for the Conservative Party. But uh, I don't care what they vote for. I, I, th I think uh, housing policy should be completely tenure neutral. It should just be driven by uh, preferences and um, and if you just had lots of people choosing to be long-term private renters uh, that could have the same beneficial effects uh, that low-cost um, housing and home ownership uh, also have so that there has been this argument um, well especially in the Corbyn years uh, that you had all the Millennials chanting oh Jeremy Corbyn uh, that, that um, 
I've read this several times that uh, by people saying if we if we had a higher home ownership rate, uh, they wouldn't do this. It's just a lot of uh, frustrated revolutionaries, and this is how they are channeling that uh, that energy. Well, okay, but if they just had uh, low cost rental housing, would that not have a similar calming effect? Would that not also have an effect of when you have the impression you're getting a good deal, whether as a renter or or a buyer? When you have the impression that you're generally getting a good deal, uh, you're not being ripped off, does that not reconcile you with the market economy over time? Wouldn't that have uh, the same effect of... Um, and the problem with high housing costs is uh, it does toxify uh, political debates. Uh, it's the reason why um, I wrote a paper on this uh, two years ago how, about how uh, millennials are the first generation that don't grow out of this commie phase that people go through with them maybe when they're 16, 17, and, and at that age it's perfectly okay, even I did that. Uh, but it's just that you would think uh, at some point this has to be over, and millennials uh, uh, doesn't seem to be the case anymore, and the housing crisis is probably driving that. But I'd say it's not home ownership per se that does that. In the current situation, it's even the case that um, the few millennials who are actually homeowners don't uh, express very different policy preferences uh, compared to the ones uh, that rent. And that's probably simply because they, they have the impression, okay, I own a house, but I'm one of the lucky few. The system is still bad. Uh, so they still sing, oh, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, <laughs> they, they, they still don't grow out of that, um, well, of that uh, youthful so it goes from face. struggling renter to champagne socialist in one band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, or it could that. be that. No intervening period. There should be a whole generation or two between them. Yeah. Uh, and, and just briefly on the, on the uh, commodification aspect. Um, yeah, I've, I've often heard uh, this argument that uh, there is a cultural problem that, uh, that, that uh, British people think of a house as an investment, whereas the average Swiss guy, the average German, think of it as just a place to live. I'd say that has nothing to do with culture. That's simply a rational expectation. Uh, it's simply because uh, for a lot of home buyers here, it was their experience that the house goes up uh, every year. And if that is your experience, you will start think of it in those terms. Whereas if your experience is that it stays broadly the same or goes up in line with average incomes, you will not think of your house as an investment. You will think of it as just a place to live. Nothing well, to do with culture. To add to that, though, I was speaking to a friend of mine in Japan recently, and about the the buy-to-let kind of scheme that really exploded after these reforms. And it's that in Japan, you literally just can't, and it's a country that's often praised by Yimbis, you can't walk into a bank and borrow money to buy a house as an investment to cover yourself instead of a pension. Mm -hmm. So the law is there. It's just not something the banks offer. So what if that were the same year? People react to incentives, that's right. You mentioned rent controls, that won't work at all. I mean, the recent experience from Scotland's probably proved that anyway, but intellectually, it's, I don't think it would work. The point about no-fault evictions, I think that what you need is a, a pool, uh, an ecosystem of renting uh, in, a, in a rental sector that has a lot of flats that are very long-term. You know, people talk about Berlin, you can get a five-year lease, you might get a 10-year lease. If you have that, wh whether the state does it or the private sector does it, at least you can build your life. I mean, the, the, the point about Liam's mates with the council houses that were built post-war is you could build your life and you might help you might hand that house over to your, your kids. You know, as a family, you might have a chance of, of staying there. The rental market, the, the buy-to-let market is a curious one. I think it's, there's a sort of guilty secret in it, which is that uh, residential yields net of, of finance costs were never, have never been very high, 
And a lot of that was the typical old British uh, casino bubble. Buy-to-let landlords bought because of the hope of capital value increase. Oh, I've got, yeah, on, on, um, on no-fault evictions, um, yeah, I, like, I kind of worry a bit about Michael, Go, you know, Michael Go, Go's re uh, rental reform bill at the moment. And I say this, like, I actually got, I don't know whether it technically was a no-fault eviction, but I had, like, a small birthday party, and my, my landlady decided after that I got to go because the, the woman below was just very, lived in a vic very noisy Victorian house, and, um, and so it was, it was a process of, she said... That was a very noisy party. You got to go. Like all, it, it was like Sunday, Monday, but then Tuesday the flat went. So that was a really brutal experience. Um, and the, and then she put up the rent by four hundred pounds per month. So that's what they're trying to do a lot of the time. And <coughs> and it's such a common experience. Like you know, usually one would have like a stigma saying this. Like oh, what you know, her party must have been. A, I mean, it was a very boring party. Well, it was nice, but it was. Do you know, it was tame. And. Um, but it's so common now. But even still, even in spite of this, I think banning them is a mistake because what people are now doing, what you're now seeing with... Michael Gove has made it infinitely worse with his renters' reform bill because people are preemptively selling up. So then you're going to get, you know, all the people with the mortgages that, like, can't afford those. And, yeah, I think in Christmas it's going to get a lot, a lot more of them. The fixed rates are up and then... You're going to get those people adding to the market and then the people that have been preemptively chucked out all across the country where demand is growing. And I think it's just going to... Mm. God, I don't know. I don't even want to look. I want to be like that when it, when it all comes. <laughs> right. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, so... I don't know. Can you hear me at all? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so um, I'm, I'm involved in the development and construction industry. I've been a civil engineer 35 years working in development both commercial and housing in London. I've done 12, 14 million square feet of uh, construction, probably two thirds commercial, but over 2000 homes in, in London. Um, and there are a couple of points of information which I think are worth considering because most people live in cities in the UK and the idea that it's all gonna be greenfield, there's going to be some of that, but the majority of problems are gonna to have to be addressed in an urban context. Um, we, we can't borrow money as developers until we are 35 to 50% pre-sold. British people don't buy flats and houses off plan three years before they move in. So we have to go to Singapore, we have to go to Malaysia, we have to go to um, Dubai and Hong Kong in order to sell off plan. And that brings in capital, which gives the banks the confidence to lend the construction loan. And it's fundamentally, we can borrow all of the money for construction, but we can't, um, we can't get that money for construction until we've proved that the loan is de-risked by virtue of the fact that we've brought in buyers. Um, I think if you, I mean, I spend half my time in Holland and half my time in the UK now, uh, but I travel extensively for work with suppliers in Italy, Germany, Holland. And one of the things you notice there, particularly in Holland, the Randstad, that central part of Holland is incredibly dense. And you move from Leiden to The Hague to Rotterdam and you see a few fields, but it's fundamentally, they've taken the decision that this land is for the benefit of the people who live mm. on, in that country. It's the same in Germany. You can, you can arrive in Cologne and go up to the Black Forest and you can see intensely developed small towns meld one into the next, into the next. And a lot of people here hate that, but that's what it looks like when you make the decision that you're going to ex, ex, 
you're going to accept higher levels of building. And, and, and frankly, if we don't do that, we are, as, as, as the panel has pointed out, we are pricing people out. Um, I, I think I'd go farther even than William, and, and, and you absolutely nailed it, Liam. The, I would give a 15% premium to agricultural land. That would be it. Anybody who was in agriculture who wanted to sell up, I'd give them a 15% premium, and I would, I would have CPO power. So people like um, the founder of the uh, Garden City movement, Ebenezer Howard. Ebenezer Howard. He bought agricultural land in um, well in Garden City, and we, and we should be able to do that. It should not accrue the 95 to the 80, 85 to 95% of the profit and the developer gain and the hope gain. It should not accrue to somebody who just happened to own land for 10 generations. Um, the French authorities, I think, have got a great way of doing this in Paris. They get the planning consent. They're the ones who follow their own rules base, and then they sell to developers mm. and or contractors. Mm. And they sell a design that is really popular and really high quality. We often have to dumb down our designs. Um, you would think that, I can tell you for being on the front line, that is actually, amazingly, a struggle to make profits. If you can get the right consent at the right time and build quickly, but the reason people don't build quickly in large numbers on large schemes is you end up competing against yourself and you drive your own price down. That's why they don't do it. So final question, I suppose the final point I'm really interested in Liam's point. We've created what The Economist refers to as enormous amounts of phantom wealth in this country, which is predicated exactly as you say on mortgages, it's even worse in America in terms of the absolute numbers, but I think as a percentage, we're probably the worst. There's something like three trillion of phantom wealth, which if we did destabilize this system, I think could cause us major problems. I'd be interested to hear your opinion on that. Go ahead, it's great to get your, your input um, and um, from an actual frontline practitioner. It's very, very valuable. A couple of thoughts spring to mind. Um, we needn't have this kind of ribbon development that you're talking about if we took the decision to actually build new settlements so i'm i was born in the late 60s um i'm wearing well i know um and we haven't and, and since then the population in the uk has gone from 45 to almost 70 million and in my lifetime we haven't built a single significant new development a new town which is mad. And the new towns that we have built have got a bad reputation because a lot of them happened after 1961. So the, so the planning gain wasn't to build the public spaces, just wasn't there. Um, and so if we got rid of the 61 Act, which you referred to as well, though the vested interests surrounding the 61 Act are, you know, the, the, the oligopolistic builders and British landowners, right? I mean, it's absolutely huge vested interest that you've got to tackle. That's why it has to be cross-party so it isn't traded between elections, which is why it has to be reasonable. You guys have nicked my policy. Labour have nicked a version of my policy that's a lot more hardline ideological and it will never work because the Tories will just reverse it and landowners will wait for the Tories to reverse it. I can go back through the history of what happened before 61, but I won't, but I can afterwards if you want. So what I, sh I say is that we should be getting rid of that act and we should be building new towns. 
and actually the existing new towns aren't all that bad they're just a bit taggy and they need some planning uplift uh, spit and polish they often have decent quality hospitals and schools they often have very good transport links um, but we need to get rid of their kind of slightly um, um, down market names I mean a lot of that is the pathetic London-based political and media class who look down their nose at Milton Keynes right even though Milton Keynes where a lot of my family moved from Irish slums in the 60s and 70s Milton Keynes has along with its concrete cows Milton Keynes has the highest number of businesses created per head of anywhere in Europe right Milton Keynes also often scores near the top of national league tables for how happy people are to live where they live it's a fabulous place to live of course you know Ponzi journalists who grew up in Chiswick thinks it's think it's naff because they've never been there or maybe they got lost once going to Henley and they ended up, <laughs> and they ended up there but these new towns are, can be massively aspirational so we can revamp our existing new towns and we can build new new towns and the thing about a new town and this goes back to William's point is that when you do it you can probably plan a mixed economy of housing so you can have the kind of place where I grew up which happened before the town and country planning act by the way it's Metroland where you had sort of quite nice semi-detached suburban houses and you had council houses interspersed in between them not as no-go zone estates they were on the same level the houses looked roughly the same and everybody lived happily together and crime was very low even though it was a really there was a real mix socio-economic mix of people which made for a vibrant local economy and a vibrant local community so I do think we need to get rid of that act I don't think we need to do the ribbon development of, of, of Holland but it's going to take a formidable power of imagination and a lot of lobbying to get this through and my concern about the policy Williams put forward is when it comes to the Labour Party my concern is even greater because they've taken my policy and I was spent a lot of time talking to Jonathan Reynolds about it, Lisa and Andy all the rest of it and they've just put a real kind of nasty hard left twist on it in order to you know stick it to the right wing and they're going to totally undermine the whole idea of sharing planning gain for another generation because a lot of Tories are just going to say that's Stalinist that's the problem you need moderation in these things you need long-term policies that aren't going to become political footballs can I, can I just come yeah. back on a, on a couple of points mm. Alistair made? So on, first on the Dutch thing, I, I like the Randstad. I think for Holland it yeah. works, it's very well planned. It's planning with a, a, a capital P. And, and I lament in this country, planning for lots of ideological reasons has literally been a dirty word for about 40 years. You know, that you can't plan, it's been anti-planning. Go to Holland, see how it can be done. Holland socializes the costs uh, so that the, 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 the uplift of new development and they have the revenue to do good good schemes and as as even you know 40 years ago in my case as planning students we spent a long a lot a lot of time in Holland looking at the Bestemmings plan looking at the system and it is a plan-led approach it's not haphazard they've thought about what they're doing it's integrated housing plus community facilities all paid for all nicely well organized but the actually the more important point that Alistair made was about this phantom wealth point the first lies most of you in this room know 
the first line to the introduction of the end of indifference, the green paper on economics we did, is that uh, debt-based consumption, consumption is not prosperity. And we have had so much of that in this country. Uh, honestly, take it from me, uh, anyone running a commercial property business, uh, value is theory. Value is absolutely theory. Debt is, rea is reality. And the difference between the two, a lot, a lot of sectors, uh, you know, the buy-to-lets are finding out and so on, um, a, a lot of our economy is just based on, on, on fluff and not reality. Um, yeah, I'm aware of uh, time is possibly yeah. the, the yeah. last question, but then I'll come to, to Christian and Charlotte. And, uh, yeah. Thanks. Um, great. This is wonderful. Um, I was coming to a uh, political discussion. I realized it's become a therapy session for me, so, which is wonderful. And there's so much um, that resonates with me in terms of what Liam said about my family. My family are immigrants, probably next door to the Irish, Jewish, Greek Im immigrants in northwest London, had nothing living in a council estate. Uh, the idea of, uh, you know, the, the idea of uh, New Towns Act and so on and so forth. Well, in fact, there was an act. There was a New Towns Act 1946, which did exactly as you described, which acquired land, identified the right locations, acquired land at existing use value, plus a fixed premium. It predated the Town and Country Planning Act 1940, uh, 1947 exactly. and the 1961 uh, Com uh, Land Compensation Act. Uh, so actually, it is entirely possible to replicate that kind of thing. Um, and you, you can actually draw on examples in Holland, in Germany and France and so on and so forth. Politically, there needs to be a, a, uh, a consensus yeah. and without scaring the horses either side, left or right and so on. Um, but it's entirely possible uh, to do just that. Uh, so I think that, I think, as you, you know, say, both saying it's a really... Really, uh, really quickly in less, yeah. less than a minute. So uh, when, yeah. you do, when you propose you know, planning of any kind, or you propose something yeah. like uh, new towns or new settlements. It, honestly, the problem you've got is it's brutalism, it's failure, and a lot of people don't understand that the brutalism was, a, was an architectural thing. Yeah. You don't need to do that. Go down to <coughs> Norwich and have a look at the, the public sector housing that won the Sterling Prize. Decent, very, very good scheme. You don't have to, you can do it right. Yeah. Mm. But I, th I think, sorry, on, on the case, on the question of Michael Gove, I think Michael Gove is in my perspective, the brains, the potentially the only brains in the current government, mm -hmm. and gets it. Um, there may be things that he's got wrong. To, I, think to I think to blame Michael Gove on the current issues, I think is, is probably too blunt I'm, a perspective. Yeah, I'm, not so, I'm not solely blaming him. I call him the Emperor's New Gove, because I think everyone thinks he's really good. He's got this reputation as being maybe a hang up from his time as education secretary, it's being this mastermind. I don't see it. You know, there's, we're missing more houses than ever before. Mm. He's yeah. leveled up by devolving power, which is just a complete mess. I do, I do think in terms of FTP sort of positioning, um, I mean, I'm a town planner, mm. um, and I, I do think we should be careful about what the position of the party is on things like you, Les, particularly out beyond London, because I, I, I'm sort of partly one foot in London, the southeast, and one foot in the north. And I, I just, I don't, I don't think, I just think with you, Les, in, in the northwest where I'm at the moment, we're in danger of becoming a protest party. Mm. And I do think 
things like devolution, I, I agree with this gentleman on devolution, certainly with the city regions, it, it, but, it's, but it's, it's nuanced. So I just think, be a bit careful with things like devolution, the, the STB position on devolution, um, you Les, mm. um, because I think sometimes you, you might end up with policies that are actually in conflict. Um, for example, you Les could be in conflict with um, densifying suburbia, addressing the housing crisis, some of those things, so I'll just... No, very, okay, very, uh, fair, very point. fair point. Very yeah. fair. Uh, just one, one very final quick question. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm just a mother of a couple of 20-somethings who's uh, they've had terrible problems trying to find somewhere to rent recently and it's so sad you know those of us kind of late boomer age we lived in a different world when we got our keys at the age of 21 whatever um, I just want to ask you about high streets because I, I sat in my local high street recently looking at all the empty properties above shops and I thought, that, you know, this would be ideal for a lot of 20-somethings don't really need houses out in the countryside and gardens. They want to live in a, you know, a regenerated, renewed high street with a bit of vibrancy. And I was speaking to a letting agent recently who said um, that, that somebody had come to them and said she wanted to let her flat out. I know, two or three bedroom flat in Tunbridge Wells or where, where we live. And uh, they, they, they said to her, well, you can't possibly do it in this state because, it, you know, it's dangerous. All the electrics need ripping out. And it would have cost a pittance. It wouldn't have cost very much at all for her to have done it. But she preferred to keep it empty. And, you know, you sit in all these high streets and everywhere, so many empty properties. Is there anything we can do about that? Because young people need to be living in them. Um. Okay, I, I'll just go uh, quickly around the, the table, sort of if you can keep your, your answers pretty short. Those just, as, right. just, yeah. as, just as I think house builders that get planning permissions they don't use, and there are over a million planning permissions outstanding now, and over 40% of planning permissions residential in London that are granted aren't built, just as I think they should be fined. So after two years, you start paying council tax, even on those unbuilt properties, I think people who sit on empty properties should be fine. So I completely agree with you. What I just a, a note of caution though, there has been a, a move, a craze to converting offices into residential properties. Um, the Permitted Development Rights Act of 2013 and 2014. It's been a bit of a disaster because in their keenness to get those properties converted, Osborne and Co dropped minimum space requirements and you're literally getting you know office buildings in Croydon converted into windowless flats that are like 20 square meters unfit for human habitation so the idea of converting properties into residential properties I'm not against it in principle and I think there should be fines particularly on your thing about flats above shops. above shops yeah. I think I think that's right but we have to be careful at not sort of going down that permitted development um, rights route of 2013 and 2014. Some councils have just stopped doing it because developers have been producing absolute basket case um, um, uh, red, red residences. They've tried some rules on permitted development rights recently, actually under this government, after a big push from the RFCs and various, yeah. various other we'll see if they're organizations. In but it's not that easy to uh, prevent it. I mean, it's, you have to do something called an article article 4 direction and that actually has to go to government for authority 
Okay, on uh, the issue of uh, empty properties, I can't comment on individual areas, but on the whole, uh, looking at macro indicators, the share of long-term empty properties here yeah. is one of the lowest yeah, in right. the developed world. Right. And ideally, you would want some slack in the market uh, for the same reason that you wouldn't want every pub or every supermarket fully packed all the time. Uh, you want some slack in the market. Uh, that should ideally be the case in uh, the housing sector as well. You want some turnover or uh, say if somebody is just a bad landlord and can't find anyone for that reason, well that's a good thing. If, uh, if, if uh, people can afford to be a bit picky, that is unfortunately uh, a million miles away from the situation that we are uh, currently in. Um, and on the, the density point, I mean, there are several proposals for that. Uh, one is the idea that you give automatic planning permission for and if there's, there's a lot of commuter stations in outer London or outskirts of other big cities uh, which are very sparsely populated where uh, you would think, well, surely this is uh, ideal. This is, you, you have the infrastructure already in place. This is where you should develop. And um, there is one plan to give automatic planning permission to, uh, for medium to high density development around commuter stations uh, in the green belt unless it's otherwise protected. So meaning if it's land that is genuinely green rather than green belt just has green in the name is actually false advertisement I think mm. it should be should be renamed but if it is just a low-grade uh, farmland if it's just a muddy field uh, give automatic planning permission for that in the vicinity of those commuter stations and then that would not be ribbon development that would mm, automatically right. be a fairly high um, density development uh, you, you can mandate it even but I don't think you would even have to it would just be uh, by virtue of being so high demand, that would be the most profitable way to develop it. Thank you, Christine. Charlotte? Um, yeah, on, on empty businesses, I kind of think, I, I want to see like um, businesses like in the empty business, because another massive problem with the housing crisis is just premises cost too much for commercial purposes as well. Um, you know, and things that prices are vastly inflating to keep up with the cost of renting a premise. And that in turn is like, leading into our housing market and the economy so i think i think that's the reason why we're seeing a lot of like derelict high streets anywhere at the moment which is really sad um i'm afraid i'm going to sound really disparaging as well in terms of the empty home it just it just feels like it's just really unattractive as a prospect because everything just feels like a race to the bottom it's sort of like we've got a housing crisis so you, you sort of see on the bbc they'll be like so what about a micro home what about someone that lived in a shed what about a canal boat? And you just feel like, what next? Like, the, you know, should we go and live in a chicken pen or something? It's all just, uh, it, yeah, it just feels like a race. It feels like someone saying to you, there are no more clothes ever in existence, so why don't you just wear this secondhand, like smelly clothes? But um, yeah, anyway. So, <laughs> so I, I think, I'll take your point. I mean, there's a lot of very long-term trends which uh, are making it very difficult for certain high streets. You go up to the north, vacancy rates are very, very high in certain areas. And uh, it's, it's partly secular, actually, that. Uh, the answer is good, better town planning and more resources, actually. But the 24-year-old me was uh, in charge of retail policy at Enfield, and I looked after Southgate and Edmonton Green and Enfield Town. And they're all different, actually. The solution that you, would have, you might, in one high street, decide to just reduce the core, you know, concentrate the shops in, in one area and induce uh, change of use on the, on the fringe to free it up. Uh, but the solution is always, all, almost always local and involves resources and good planning. Okay, thank you, William. Um, despite uh, 
saying right at the beginning, we finish at 8.30 uh, sharp, but my time coming is not great, it's 8.45. Um, so it's for me to thank everybody for, for all our speakers for, for turning up and speaking, uh, Liam, Christian, Charlotte and William. And um, yeah, a great debate. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.